Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot of beginning investors tend to panic sell. They'll see the price of their shares start to fall. They'll see some volatility. They'll get scared and they'll sell out. And a lot of the times that is exactly the wrong time. A little bit of volatility shouldn't scare you away from your otherwise good plans. In general, I do think that investors should be able to actively take steps to inform themselves and be aware of their own psychology when they're investing. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. What creates outsized stock market returns? Is it understanding financial statements, making rational decisions, reading charts, or is it more about what goes on inside our heads, individually and collectively? To explain, I'm pleased to welcome Ethan Wydell. Hi, Ethan. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm um, I'm really impressed with all those uh, paper-based devices you've got in the background there. <laughs> You're a very old-school kind of guy like me. <laughs> You know, a value investor, written books. <laughs> yeah. What next, button-down collar? Oh, well, for those who can't see us. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ethan, you're a senior analyst at Ironhold Capital and a passionate practitioner of value investing. You graduated from Columbia University with majors in economics and psychology and came into the field of finance through the unusual route of psychology research. Why do you believe that psychology is a major driving force in markets? Well, really, inefficiency is the heart of investing, and psychology is the heart of inefficiency. I suppose when I talk about inefficiency, I need to backtrack a little bit and talk about the efficient market hypothesis, which basically states that the market always gets the price of securities right, and that you can't beat the market over a long period of time except by sheer luck or by taking on additional risk. Where does that come from, that hypothesis? Well, it was really the standard that academics judged the market by. And uh, you know, the market is supposed to be the bastion of economic rationality, where everyone makes correct decisions based on instantly incorporating new information. According to you know, the EMH, if you find yourself at the edge, it probably isn't going to last. And yet, lots of investors beat the market over long periods of time, which should hypothetically be impossible. Why is this? Well, basically because real humans aren't perfectly rational creatures. We get greedy, we get fearful, we fail to incorporate relevant information into our ideas. And ultimately, we sometimes make bad decisions. I think this is true on an individual level, and it's also true on the level of the stock market, where people make mistakes and the so-called smart money of the EMH doesn't immediately bet in the opposite direction to correct them. I think by knowing where these inefficiencies are and by avoiding a lot of common mistakes themselves, investors can source good ideas and secure some great returns. That seems to be a strange idea to me, so strange only academics could come up with it, that markets can be based on rational decisions alone. I mean, it just for me, just intuitively, you, and you can see the way that emotions move markets every day. Is that the way you see it, that the, the markets are moved by emotions on a macro level as well as in individual investors' minds? 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's no new idea that there are psychological forces acting in the markets. You know, John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, referred to these tendencies as animal spirits in, I think, 1936, what's now called behavioral economics. Humans are not hardwired to be cold and partial consumers of data. And we really do see that in the stock market. I think it's a little bit surprising that the efficient market hypothesis ever really took off, but it was you know, for a very long time and still to some extent today a contentious issue. John Maynard Keynes was a, an investor as well, wasn't he? Absolutely. Yeah, he, yeah uh, I think he, he made and lost several fortunes. From, indeed. From um, <laughs> I think he was one to say the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Yeah, yeah. As individual investors, what should we understand about our own thought processes? Well, I think that there's a lot. In general, people are subject to a lot of biases that can hurt their decision-making process. Being aware of these and taking steps to prevent them can really help investors avoid some major pitfalls. I think the first and the most important of these is confirmation bias. And this is the tendency to seek information that confirms what you already believe and reject information that disconfirms what you believe. Once we develop an opinion, we're likely to stick with it even when we're confronted with evidence that challenges that opinion. Take this as an example. You know, if you're at a new job and you have your first interaction with your boss goes really badly and you get it in your mind that your boss doesn't like you. Well, you could go forward and approach this with a scientific mindset and kind of collect data as you keep interacting with your boss and have a running hypothesis on whether your boss likes you or not. But if you're falling prey to confirmation bias, what you're more likely to do is keep note of all the times that you have a less than great interaction with your boss and kind of just ignore all the times where everything's fine. And so you get really entrenched in this idea of yours. And we see this all over from our politics to our personal lives. And it's especially dangerous in investing where you can get an idea about a company and ignore everything that tells you that that idea isn't great. I think one of the things that you can do to prevent this is, of course, to seek out this disconfirming information. You should ask yourself, what information will it take to disprove my idea? And you should look for that information. I think another thing that you can do is ask someone that you trust, a trusted friend, to uh, poke holes in your ideas, to take the opposite side and say, no, here's all the reasons why you're wrong. And if the good reasons outweigh the bad reasons, you just might have a really good idea on your hands. Can people really control their emotions? I mean, you know, you've studied psychology. What are some of the strategies that you can use to um, keep these emotions under control? Well, I think that they can. I think that by being aware and acknowledging that, you know, these are something real that can really hurt your investment decisions, by acknowledging that and by taking active steps to prevent it, investors can really, you know, dodge some of the pitfalls of that. One of the things with prospect theory is that a lot of beginning investors tend to panic sell. They'll see the price of their shares start to fall, they'll see some volatility, they'll get scared and they'll sell out. And a lot of the times that is exactly the wrong time to sell out. You had a good idea, you put in the work, you did your research. And 
a little bit of volatility shouldn't scare you away from your otherwise good plans. So in general, I do think that investors should be able to you know, actively take steps to inform themselves and be aware of their own psychology when they're investing. So let's have a look at the bigger picture. What are the collective psychological forces acting on markets? Well, you know, efficient market hypothesis predicts that everyone should be rational and average. But in fact, we see a number of ways that the market isn't rational. You know, like I was talking about before, economists like Keynes and like the value investors have been talking about this since far before it became a major trend in economics. I think that a lot of market inefficiency comes from the relationship that investors have with information. For one, investors tend to overreact to news, especially bad news. Remember prospect theory, people tend to freak out over perceived loss, and this causes people to panic. On the other hand, you know, people get overly excited about new ideas and they can overreact on the other side as well. A lot of value investing involves looking at good companies that received some bad news recently, asking the question, did the market overreact? If the answer is yes, then you just might have a bargain on your hands. I think investors incorporate information that doesn't really affect a company as well into their decisions about a stock, oftentimes. Part of this is due to the influence that comes from hearing information from perceived authority. When you hear somebody on the news talk about a company, unless the person speaking is delivering objective, publicly available facts or is an executive at the company, you probably shouldn't pay much attention to what they have to say because they're not really necessarily experts. But general news and you know, general market sentiment really influences the prices of individual stocks, even though the information doesn't directly pertain to those companies. So during the course of this conversation, we're going to be referring to some um, metrics in terms of how to value companies. But one of the most basic metrics is what's known as the PE ratio. Can you explain the PE ratio for us, please, Ethan? So the PE ratio stands for price to earnings, and it is the ratio of a company's market cap to the total earnings of the company, or, you know, it's the ratio of the company's stock price to earnings per share. So it is generally taken as kind of a loose and fast measure of how cheap a company is. If you're getting a low PE ratio, it means that the price is low. And if you're getting a high PE ratio, it means that the company might be expensive. Of course, this doesn't take into account factors like growth and the quality of business and quality of management that are all things that need to be considered. So just PE on its own doesn't cut it. Yep. So what's an example of a number? I mean, what's the average of the S&P 500 at the moment as an example, just so we can get an idea of the shape of the numbers? I think historically it averages 10 to 15 I'm actually not positive where it is right now. Probably 30 to 50. Things are awfully expensive right now. I can look that up really quick. So I believe presently the average PE ratio of the S&P 500 index is 41. And that suggests that 
investors are really paying a premium for the largest companies in the stock market. They are expecting growth and they are willing to pay up for it. And there have only been a couple of times that we've seen such high PE ratios in you know, stock market history. We saw it in 2008, right before the collapse of the economy there. And we saw it during the tech bubble in 2000, where investors were really excited about the new technology of the internet. But without creating a, a climate of fear. <laughs> without creating a climate of fear. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm not one to uh, call the top, call the stock market, say that, uh, you know, the end is near. I don't know how much longer it can be sustained, but, you know, there, there might not be a recession for another year, two years, five years, 10 years. I, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Hmm. So um, just um, on that kind of metric alone, like a, a company that's got a PE less than 10, you could easily say it's cheap, but that's not the only measure to take into account. It's not the whole picture, but it's a little snapshot. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. So, um... What I'm trying to get here is to try and bring this down and distill it into what is good, solid information that beginners can use because beginners are going to be confused by this plethora of information that gets thrown at them by trying to um, look at too much news. How can a beginner start to make their own rational decisions and cut out all the noise of uh, the psychology? Absolutely. I think that most of it is just getting your, your psychology in the right place. Be aware of the biases that you might face and take the steps necessary to combat that. I think also, and obviously I'm biased as a value investor, but I think taking a step back and looking at the fundamentals of a company, looking at stock ownership as ownership in a little bit of a company. And I, I know that it's a little bit controversial because not all companies give dividends and not all companies provide any sort of meaningful voting rights if you are an individual investor. So it can feel like you're not really an owner in the company. But if you approach ownership with that mindset, then it can help you to really disconnect a little bit between all the noise in stock price and the underlying value of the stock that you have. You're an analyst. So where do you start looking for this kind of value in a company so that you can have some conviction based on your own knowledge as opposed to just wildly reacting to uh, psychological forces? Well, the first place where I like to look is through screens. You know, there are a number of different screens that are both free and paid online that investors can use. And you can screen for such things as growth. You can screen for price earnings. You can screen for all kinds of metrics. And I like to look for companies in that way that are really high quality 
and appear on the surface level to be cheap. And then it's about just digging deep and doing the research and putting in the work. You have to know where a company is in its competitive landscape. You have to know where a company is in terms of its just basic economic supply and demand. You have to know whether it has good management, whether the management is actually benefiting shareholders. And that's another thing that there is a lot of behavioral inefficiency in because not all managers are looking out for their shareholders. And a lot of it depends on how they're incentivized. You can look in the proxy reports to determine all of this, but you want for your management to be incentivized to benefit the stockholder in the long run, whether that is by long run earnings growth or free cash flow or even long run stock price. You want for them to have the the investors in mind. Do you have an example of a recent company that you've analyzed and a little bit of the process of what you went through just to reveal some of your insights to listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the companies that I analyzed recently and you know I have to say for full disclosure, you know, not telling you to to buy a company, not saying anything It's not other a recommendation to buy, is it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So one of my favorite companies that I recently analyzed and invested in and held a position in was uh, TPL, Texas Pacific Land Trust, now Texas Pacific Land Corporation. The company is kind of all of the things that a value investor wants. It has high earnings, it has some growth potential, and it seemed really, really undervalued. And part of that is because there was a massive sell-off during COVID. And the company is a land trust in West Texas, which means basically that other oil and natural gas companies can come onto the land and basically pay rent, pay royalty for the right to drill. But what that means for Texas Pacific land is that they have an incredibly safe business. They're just sitting on 900,000 acres of land that they inherited in the 1800s. So they don't have to pay any depreciation. They don't have to pay any maintenance fees. They don't have to pay hardly any expenses. And yet they are continually growing their earnings because of how little this land has been developed. And when we were first looking at it, the price was a little bit above $500. And all of the sentiment about it was like, yeah, it's a play in like the decline of American oil and gas, which eventually is absolutely a thing. We're going to run out of oil and gas. We're going to face a lot of problems there. And in the long, long run, it is probably not a good place to be. But in the present run, we still need oil and gas. We still need energy. And here is this company with a massive amount of land that has just that. And the market didn't seem to be seeing it. And part of it was because the company, they basically adhered to some reporting that applied to companies that were just pre-modern. They were still reporting as though they were a land trust from the 1800s, not a modern 21st century corporation. So there was an activist campaign by some of the company's major shareholders to restructure the company to take it public again, not as Texas Pacific Land Trust, but as Texas Pacific Land Corporation, where they would be more transparent and 
be more active with their investors and about aligning investor needs with the management. And just that happened. And the price of oil has gone up dramatically as well, which was you know, more or less just lucky. My analysis of it took about $40 as a conservative price for oil going in the future. And you know, this was mid-2020. And now the price is around $1,500 for the stock, not for oil. For oil, the price shot up to about $60. The price of the stock shot up to about $1,500. And well, you know, the rest is history. Arising out of that story is also the fact that a company like this is wholly dependent on the price of a commodity, and in this case, oil. Is that the case? Well, it's partially dependent on the price of oil. The price of oil will influence, to an extent, the revenues that it gets, and it will influence the extent to which oil companies are interested in drilling on its land. If oil prices are too low, the companies won't drill because they have a certain break-even point. And it's different for different companies and for different regions. But generally, if the price of oil falls below that break-even point, the companies know that they can't make any money drilling oil and they just don't do it. Usually, this scarcity leads for oil prices to creep up and the companies will start drilling again. But it's not wholly dependent because as long as the price of oil doesn't fall below that break-even point, then there are still companies drilling and there is still revenue coming in for TPL. But like I said before, they have almost no costs whatsoever. And so they have very little risk of losing money, of going bankrupt, of having debtors or having to to pay money to debtors. And I didn't mention this before, but they also have no debt outstanding whatsoever. So they don't need any leverage to do extraordinarily well. Sweet business that family inherited, wasn't it? No kidding. (laughs) It's like the Beverly Hillbillies almost. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So there's two things that I'm hearing there. One of them is, first of all, that um, you mentioned shareholder activism. And this is an example of where shareholders have taken charge of the ownership of the company. And investors really do need to see themselves as being part owners of a company. Absolutely. And activism has the potential to be really powerful that way, because if the management isn't quite doing right by the shareholders, sometimes activists will come in and they'll say, okay, no, we need to have more people on the board, or we need to get a new CEO altogether, who is really going to help the shareholders. And so that's a situation where it really pays to follow the news on the company to keep up with what are these activists actually trying to do? And if they're successful, is it going to help you? Do you follow that as a lead sometimes, just watching what activists are doing and seeing if they are actually working for something that will benefit for all shareholders? I do. It's important to distinguish between that and activists who might be trying to just artificially pump up the price of shares and sell out their position. You really don't want that because you don't know Maybe the share price does go up. Maybe it's fallen again by the time that you have the chance to react to that. So it becomes an issue of like, are you quicker than the activists? And that's a game that I don't want to play. So I guess this is a good example where we can swing into value investing as well. You found 
deep value in this company. Absolutely. So explain it to us. I mean, we had Enrique on a few episodes ago talking about value investing being a death cult. (laughs) What would you say to Enrique? (laughs) Well, I really admire Enrique Abeda. He is a tremendously bright guy and I appreciate his insight on the stock market. That being said, I think that his accusation about value investing being a death call is a little bit of an aggressive exaggeration. And I think that it only refers to a subset of really old school value investors. You know, back in the 70s, just buying stocks with low PE ratios was a strategy that could secure good returns. But like anything, value investing is a philosophy that's growing and changing as the market matures. In the past, value investors could be successful by investing in stocks of beaten down companies that were out of favor and whose shares have been left for dead by investors so long as they traded at an attractive price. And that's where I think that Enrique talks about value investing as a death cult, just buying everything that's cheap. You know, these same investors would also ignore growth stocks of companies whose prices traded at a premium to account for strong growth potential. But good value investors have wisened up since then and have changed their philosophy and have changed their perspective of fundamental value, what constitutes fundamental value. For one, it's no longer about buying anything that's trading at a discount. It's about buying good companies at good prices. It's about incorporating growth and actually understanding what makes a company tick and what components matter in determining a company's fundamental value. For value investors, growth investors, traders, speculators, I think everybody agrees that earnings eventually inform the price of a company. I think the only substantial way that I disagree with Enrique is in the degree to which I'm willing to stray from earnings as a proxy for value. I want companies that have proven that they're good companies, and I'm not willing to pay too much of a premium for growth. Really, though, there are lots of ways to make money in the stock market. Value investing is just one of those ways, but it's a way that it works. Ultimately, it's just buying stuff for less than it's worth. No cloak and dagger, no death cult. (laughs) No death cult. So another guest recently explained to me, and um, please let me know if I'm wrong, but um, the difference between value stocks and growth stocks is just a function of the PE ratio. Is that correct? Like a a value stock's got low PE ratio and growth stocks got high PE ratio. Is it as simple as that? Well, I think it is and it isn't. Historically, a lot of people discuss growth and value as though they're two totally different and separate things. You know, value in the sense means that stocks are cheap relative to their earnings. They have a low PE ratio. And growth means stocks of companies who are growing their earnings quickly and projected to do so in the future, which suggests a high PE ratio because usually by the time that you know that a company is growing, people are willing to pay a premium in order to get it on that. And historically, some value investors have been too dismissive of growth prospects, like I was talking about before, because they are hard to predict and the companies don't seem super cheap. And if cheap is your only philosophy, then growth really doesn't play into that. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of growth investors pay too high a price for companies that have yet to really demonstrate a track record of success. And therein lies the sort of historic difference between the two. As far as plain old vanilla variety growth versus value is concerned, the two have kind of vied with each other historically over which secured the highest returns. You know, value is done better than growth at some points. Growth has done better than value at some points. 
But I think that believing in just one or the other is kind of missing the point. Good value investing should incorporate growth and good growth investing should care if you're paying at, you know, a thousand times PE ratio for a company. Like you can't pay too high of a premium because you don't know anything for certain. You don't know that the company is going to keep growing. You don't know that competitors aren't going to come in and take away market share. And so you have to look at both and really good investing is a combination of the two. So is there anything grinding your gears at the moment, Ethan? Anything in the markets that's uh, (laughs) causing you consternation? Well, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is the value of doing your own work. I have a lot of friends who have been asking me what they should invest in if they don't want to do a lot of research. And Everyone wants a tip, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Wants wants a tip at the racetrack, yeah. Well, and how to get away in particular with not reading financial reports. Yes. (laughs) I... Investors need to be good at accounting. And, you know, accounting is the language of finance. And if you don't speak the language, it's hard to get around. But more importantly, it's just critical that if you're going to invest in something, you need to put in the time, put in the effort, and really dig deep into whether something is worth your money. There are lots of good ways to make money in the stock market, but unfortunately, none of them are easy. So the best thing that I can recommend to anyone who doesn't have the time or doesn't have the energy or motivation to uh, dig through 10Ks and 10Qs is just to invest in the S&P 500 index. You know, you'll beat the majority of professional managers and you don't have to do anything. Just put your money there and leave it. It is. That's one of the things I've been thumping the table about this for a long time is just working out what kind of investor you are and whether you're actually going to be interested in reading financial statements and reports. And, you know, some people really enjoy that and get off off on it. But otherwise, (laughs) just buy an ETF. Absolutely. Like, I really enjoy reading financial reports. And, you know, it's tremendously nerdy of me to be passionate about accounting. But It really is the way that you get to know a company and you get to know management and you get to know what's actually going on behind the scenes. And other than that, you don't have very much other than like, I like this, I'm going to buy it. And I think that even ETFs can sometimes be the same way. A lot of times ETFs are kind of marketing instruments by funds. You know, they will create an ETF for something that's popular and trendy and that investors are excited about. But again, like you have to look at the companies that that's comprised of. You have to look at what you're actually holding because just just having a big collection of electric vehicles doesn't mean that you're going to be successful, even though, you know, electric vehicles are probably going to take off. You have to know that the companies themselves are good companies that are worthy of your investment. And that takes homework and it takes time. And, you know, it's, it's not easy. It isn't easy. That is a great insight. That's something that I've been discovering by doing this program is that ETF providers are basically looking around for buzzwords on social media from which they then create ETFs because it's a whole marketing exercise. My favorite is the new ETF. Uh, it's literally called Buzz. That's right. Yeah. It's a collection of all the stuff that people are talking about on Reddit. <laughs> That's right. So, um, Apart from that, is there any other advice you've got for newbies, Ethan? Oh, so much. Where do I start? I think one of the most important things is to think about investing in terms of compounding. Most of wealth building is a linear process. At your job, you probably make a relatively fixed sum of money, whether it's 
X dollars per hour, Y dollars per year. And it's just as difficult to make $10,000 if you have 5,000 in the bank as it is to make 10,000 if you have nothing saved up or 20,000 saved up or whatever. But with investing, it is just as easier, perhaps just as difficult to turn 5,000 into 10,000 as it is to turn 10,000 into 20,000. And over the long run, it's this exponential growth that really drives wealth creation beyond the virtue of just saving your cash. The earlier you start that, the more that compounding will work in your favor. And I think that that is what really should be inspiring investors to invest, you know, not to get rich quick, not to like find the next million dollar idea. But the fact that if you have good ideas over a long period of time, your wealth grows exponentially. And what about if someone starts feeling the same urges that you do and want to start reading financial statements? Where's a good place to start? Oh, well, as evidenced by all of the books behind me, I think the best place to start is reading. You know, read your annual reports, but if you're not comfortable with that yet, there are so many books by great people who have done it successfully. I really like Joel Greenblatt. I like Peter Lynch. I like Warren Buffett's annual Letters to Shareholders. As far as psychology is concerned, I also really like Richard Thaler and anything written by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. You know, they have a number of great books. The book Thinking Fast and Slow in particular is just a magnum opus on all of the ways that psychology impacts investing. If people want to find out more about Ironhold Capital, and we haven't even covered the fact that uh, Ironhold Capital has a great uh, interest in the Indian subcontinent as well, where can listeners find you? We're available on LinkedIn and we are available at ironholdcapital.com. I think that's it. Let me just check. <laughs> yep, it's ironholdcapital.com. Fantastic, Ethan. That's great. Thank you very much for joining me today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Music flows when the money don't. 